I want to start with a question today. Have you ever been lost? Like, like not just like, oh, I'm not quite sure where I am, but like proper lost, like absolutely no idea where you are in the middle of nowhere. Oh, everyone's pointing at Sarah <laughs> either side of her. They're like, oh, you know, and, and kind of like with the idea that you don't know how you got to where you are. Yeah, she's nodding. Yep. Yeah. Oh, good. So you can't just turn around and retrace your steps until you find somewhere familiar. You've got to legitimately stop and ask for directions, right? And there's a sense of dread that comes with that, and the sense of dread that comes with thinking that you might be in the middle of getting lost. Like you're like, I think I'm, I think we might be lost, or we might be about to get lost, or maybe you're like not driving. <laughs> maybe maybe the people that were travelling with you, Sarah, and they were like, oh, we have no control over where we're going, <laughs> and we might be getting lost right now. Maybe it happened as a kid. Uh, I have a story of being out of control and thinking I was going to get lost, lost at sea. I might have told you guys this before, but I had a friend when I was at intermediate school, and he took me sailing uh, over on the North Shore, and we were in the little boat, uh, and he was showing me how to, to do, use the boat, you know, and we were sailing out having a great time. And he's like, do you want to have a go by yourself? And I was like, oh, I'm not sure. I don't really know. He's like, no, you'll be fine. So I was like, okay. So he put me in the boat and sent me off. And needless to say, like five minutes later, I, I could only figure out how to go one direction. And that was the way that the wind was blowing. And it was blowing out to sea. And so I was like, I'm not just going to keep, keep trying to turn around, but it would just stop. And then this boat would just drift. And so I was slowly drifting out to sea and just highly afraid that I was going to just be lost at sea. Uh, eventually they just came and got me and, and my friend, I saw him just sailing it back in. I was like, how do you do that? The wind's not blowing that way. Um, but maybe it wasn't like that for you. Maybe, maybe you was much more simple. You got lost at the, the mall or the supermarket or something like that. Or maybe you had lost someone. Uh, this happened to my mum when, when we were young. And I have to say and emphasize this was not her fault. Okay. I want to make that clear. <laughs> In case she ever listens to this, she thinks, oh, Jason's blaming me for being a terrible parent. No, it's not how it was. It was, it was totally uh, mine and my brother's fault. We were quite young and we were supposed to walk home from school and mum was going to meet us halfway home. And this is out in Swanson, you remember, and so it's in the middle of kind of like the bush. And uh, So we were supposed to get home at a certain time, but she was going to meet us halfway. And this happened regularly and we, we were supposed to be at this place for her to meet us. But what happened is one of the mums at school saw us walking, and she was like, I'll give you guys a ride home. And we're, this is obviously in 1990, so no cell phones, nothing like that. And I was like, no, look, we'll just walk. Mum will pick us up. She'll be here soon. She's like, no, 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 it might rain. I insist. So she put me and my brother in the car, drove us home. We were very happy because we were like, well, we're at home waiting uh, but you can imagine how mum felt when she drives to the place that she was supposed to pick us up from in the middle of the bush and her two sons are not there. And then she drives the route back to the school and we're not there and we're not at the school. And so she drives and she's trying to find us. And eventually I just have this picture in my head of her driving her car furiously up the driveway to our house and just getting out and just like screaming like, what, what have you guys done? that?" You know, just... I just can't imagine the sinking feeling in the pit of her stomach as she drove up there going, are my sons at home or have I lost them? Have they been kidnapped? What's, what's going on? And um, I can just, you know, we've all had that sinking feeling in your stomach, deep in the pit of your stomach when you feel like you're lost or you realize that you've lost something or 
or that sort of that sort of feeling. I think we can all relate to that. But do you know what? I think that there are a lot of people who who have this feeling, but they ignore it or they cover it cover it up with different activities. Um, but it's not just about being lost in like I don't know where I am, but lost generally in life. Like they have this idea that they don't know where they're going or what they're doing. Um, but if we look into their souls, we would see that feeling there. And if they stop long enough, they would feel it. If they stop distracting themselves long enough just to quiet their minds and their hearts, they would feel it. The question that comes out of that observation is how do we find meaning, purpose, and direction for our lives? Well, what do you know? Our text today answers that question. And so we're going to pray and talk about it. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we are just grateful that you uh, have given us your word, that you have um, inspired your apostles to write these words down, and that they have great weight and meaning for us. We pray that as we consider them today, that you would uh, really speak to our hearts. Lord, speak into that place, that, um, that place of nagging lostness, that we would know your peace in the midst of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in John chapter 14. We did a bit of a big skip from John 10 all the way through to John 14, but we're following along these, these um, I am sayings. And so we're in John 14, the first seven verses. So here they are. Do not or don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Very apt question. Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So those are our verses. We're going to explore them, what they mean today. But as always, we have to give some context to these verses because you just pick them up um, and it's a bit confusing if you just pick them up in the middle of the story. So John 14 is right in the middle of this passage at the end of John's gospel called the Farewell Discourse. Okay, And this is where, like it says, Jesus is taking an extended amount of time to say goodbye. It's four chapters, and he's talking about the future. It's his way of saying, uh, I'm going away, and this is what that means. It starts in chapter 13 where he washes his disciples' feet, and then he does a whole lot of teaching in the following chapters. It's amazing. If you look at the flow of John's gospel, you kind of get um, Jesus' ministry lasts three years, and John's gospel is like 21, 22 chapters. And the first uh, 12 chapters covers those three years of ministry. So it's kind of sped up quite fast. And then it slows right down when you get to the Passover week and the Last Supper, and it uh, uh, basically, from chapter 13 to chapter 18, all happens in the same evening. So it really slows down to say 
This is important, what Jesus did on this last night. Pay attention to it. So it's five chapters focused on that last night of Jesus on earth. And you sense the mood. As you read through this discourse, you kind of sense the mood um, as Jesus is saying goodbye to his followers. There's this dread, this somberness. I mean, think about what this is still in the, at the dinner table. And he's just told them that there's a traitor, you know, someone's going to betray him. Uh, and Judas has just gone out to betray him. And he's told Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. And he's told them that he's going to die. You can imagine the, the feelings of sadness and kind of confusion that they would be feeling at that time. They're like, but hold on a second. Like, if you're the Messiah, that doesn't work. How does this all fit together? How can I betray you? Who's going you know, to betray you? How is this all happening? And so he tells them that he's going away, but he tells them that he's going to prepare a place for them. And when he comes back, he's going to take them there. So that's the first part of our verse. He's saying, look, all this bad stuff, don't let your heart be troubled. Okay, I'm coming back. I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And he's talking about both the resurrection on uh, the third day and then at his second coming again. He's telling that he's going to be with them again. He even tells them, you guys know where I'm going and you know how to get there. And I love how he sets that up because he's not being explicit. He's just like, well, I'm going away, but I'll come and get you. And you guys know where I'm going. He knows that they kind of don't know where he's going. So he sets it up for the question that Thomas is going to ask. He's saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can, we, how can we know the way? Then Jesus gives them what one theologian has called the premier expression of the theology of this entire gospel in this statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're going to take the, the center of the theology of John's gospel, it's summed up in this statement here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus gives us three ways of understanding who he is in this I am statement. So the first thing that he says is that he is the way. And you have to realize, well, you will realize as we go through it, that all of these things are in the singular, right? Not, not one of many, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I am a way, a truth, and a life. And so that's the first kind of thing we want to recognize. But this is the most important statement, part of the statement. I am the way. Because that's the one that comes first, and that's the one that's in answer to Thomas's question. When Thomas says, but we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus says, well, I am the way. And so the other answers flow out of that. I am the way, and I am the way because I am. You could say, I am the way because I am the truth and the life is one way of, of kind of translating that. So Jesus says, since you know me and I'm the way, then you know the way. But what does it mean that Jesus is the way, though? The way to where? Because you could say that Jesus is the way to anything you want, right? You want power. Jesus is the way to get power, which is what some popes have thought throughout the centuries, right? But if we look at the context again, Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house, and I'm going to prepare rooms in that house. There's heaps of rooms there, and I'm going to prepare them for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you. That's where Jesus is the way to, the father's house. And that means the place where God the Father lives, the place where he dwells, where his presence is. And so that word rooms has connotations of like dwelling, abiding, like 
staying in that place. So to be in the rooms in the Father's house is to dwell, to exist, to live forever in the presence of God. We're going to look at that more next week because next, well, not next week, two weeks' time, because our next saying is, I am the true vine, right? And you need to abide in the vine. And we're going to talk about that idea of abiding. But if you want to abide, if you want to be in God's presence, the way to get there, the way that you have to go is through Jesus. But how can Jesus be the way to the Father? Well, it's because of the claim that he's made heaps and heaps of times in the gospel, that he has been sent. That's that, that word, I was sent, Jesus makes that claim over 40 times in this gospel, that he has come down from heaven, right? When he said uh, his first I am statement, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. So he's the one who's come from that place, and he knows how to get to that place. He knows what it takes for us to get to that place. And he knows uh, how and how that's going to be achieved. And this idea of the way, uh, is so, the, the reason that one of the, the theologians called it the center of John's gospel and this statement about being the way is because that's how the Christians were identified in the early church. You think about what um, Saul or Paul was doing uh, in Acts chapter 9. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, that he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So this is how Christians were identified as followers of or belonging to the way. Jesus said, I am the way. We belong to the way. This is a cool name. Like whenever someone asks you, I think from now on, what what faith you have, you're like, oh, I'm just a member of the way. It sounds like an odd cult, but I think it's pretty cool, isn't it? It's just, uh, I belong to the way. Um, But it identifies the early Christians as people who lived and journeyed and followed a certain path through life. I mean, that's, that's essentially what we mean when we talk about discipleship is following the path, the, the, the directions, the way of life of Jesus, following a person, right? For us, the way is not an abstract set of principles like a philosophy, but it is a person embodied in Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very clear there's only two ways, all right? This is uh, something that you know, people sometimes take issue with, is that the Bible is clear there's only two pathways through life. There's God's way or our way. The way of Jesus or the way of idolatry. Jesus is the way to God. Psalm 1 sets this up beautifully for us. Sometimes in your Bibles you'll see Psalm 1 titled as the two ways because that's what it talks about. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. That's the way of life. That's the way of uh, the righteous. The wicked are not so. This is the second way. That, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there's the way of the Lord or the way of the wicked. And you walk, stand, sit in the way of the Lord, or you walk, stand, sit in the way of 
the wicked. Now, the question is, people will say, well, who are you to make these absolute claims, right? This is a, a, an either-or. This is black and white. People don't like binary choices in our world today. But the thing is, it's not us that are making these claims, right? I'm not saying this is how it is. This is the claim that Jesus is making, right? I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the one making the exclusive claim. And that's important to remember because Jesus is claiming, again, remember one of the first things that we talked about in the series. When Jesus says, I am, he's claiming that self-identification of God the Father. That's what he's saying. And so he's claiming to be God. And the view of God that the Scripture has is a view of God that is so above us, so different, so other, that we can't even really comprehend him fully. You remember in Exodus, Moses asked God, he says, God, can I, let me see your glory. And God's reply was, I'll let my glory pass and you can see the rest of it, but you can't see the whole thing. You cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. I mean, God is so much above and different and other than us that if we look on him in our prison form, we die. And you think about what that means and why, why people who think they've seen God through the Old Testament go, I've seen God, I've seen the face of God, I'm going to die. But this means that God is so far above us that we cannot know him apart from him revealing himself to us. We can't get the nature or character or the particulars of God unless he tells us what he's like. We get some vague hints at his existence and, and looking at the world, and we get that what theologians call general revelation, that you look around and you can see there's order and there's um, intentionality behind the world. But we cannot know him and his saving grace apart from him revealing himself to us. And that's why it's so important that Jesus makes these claims, these I am statements, so that we know who he is and we can respond to who he is. He's God's son come down from heaven and he can lead us back because only God can lead us back the way that he has come. He's claiming that the Father is present in him, that he's one with God. Remember, he says in John 10, I and the Father are one. And that's all throughout this gospel, this identification of Jesus and the Father. And John starts, this, starts us off with this in the first four verses. He says, in the beginning was the word, and that's his word. That's, the word is his word or term for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, one thing not one thing was created that has been created. So John uh, has set this up for us. And Jesus, throughout the gospel, says that to grow deeper and to know Him is to know God the Father. Because Jesus is the way to approach God. Secondly, He tells us that He is the truth. The truth. Theologian F.F. F. Bruce said, All truth is God's truth, as all life is God's life, but God's truth and God's life are incarnate in Jesus. Now, truth is an even more difficult topic in today's world, and so we're just going to skip over this one. No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it's crazy to think about that, uh, you know, about 30, less, well, about 30 years ago, I'd say, around the time when I was Gabriella's age, the census in New Zealand, I shared this before, 70% of New Zealand considered themselves to be Christian. 
30 years later, it's less, it's about 30%. So we've kind of inverted those, those uh, numbers. So what, what happened? Well, a couple of things. New Zealand is more diverse now, and there's a lot of different religions that people can choose from. If you look on the census, Jedi is a religious category. So if you want to be a Jedi, you can put that on the census next time it rolls around. Uh, you get a lightsaber and a robe and, and uh, go and be Jedi. But more importantly, uh, and part of what I just said shows the change in thinking. I don't know if you caught it, but I said that people can choose what religion they want. There's more choice. And that's the case. We started to see faith in terms of our subjective preference. So 30 years later, our faith is on par with uh, our uh, choice of ice cream flavor. So as a family, we go out to, uh, uh, regularly to eat ice cream because it's, why not? Ice cream is delicious. And the best part is when you watch the kids choose the ice cream flavor that they're going to choose because they debate about it and they guess which one the other person's going to have and they suggest, oh, you should have this one, you should have this one. But they, they're showing their preference when they choose. Last time, uh, Gabriella had watermelon sorbet which sounds... Um, and Daniel had triple chocolate fudge, which sounds delicious, right? And it was delicious. Uh, now, it's true that for Daniel, triple chocolate fudge is a better flavor than watermelon sorbet, right? But that's not true for Gabriella. For her, watermelon sorbet is better flavor, and so they've got to argue all day long which ice cream is better, and they'll never agree because it's a subjective truth. And this is how we have now reduced our faith in our religion too. What's true for you isn't true for me. What my preference is, is what I think is true. I like how this one fits into my pre-existing beliefs, and so I will pick this one, and I'll live this way. Um, But the truth is, (laughs) the truth is, we live in a world of absolute truth, objective truth, truth that is out there, that impresses itself on us, and that is not determined by your eye, truths like gravity and mathematics and things like that. Yes, but that is an absolute truth statement, and so it can either be true or it can't be true. That's part of the ridiculousness of. Uh, it's like if if uh, if someone from uh, from uh, I don't know Germany came in here and they stood up here and they said, "I do not speak a word of English." That's a self-contradicting statement because they just spoke a sentence in English, right? So uh, that's what it's like when you say there is no absolute truth. That's an absolute truth statement, and it uh, contradicts itself. But Jesus is claiming to be the absolute truth, the truth of the universe, the foundation for everything. And this is important for us because without a fixed point of truth, without an objective out there not determined by me point of truth, then... The question is, what do we stand on? Now, I don't know if you guys have heard of Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. He started a ministry. He was uh, one of Richard Nixon's, um, he was one of the Watergate Seven, and he went to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. And uh, he became a Christian while he was in prison, started a prison ministry, and went around speaking after he got out of prison. And one of uh, the things that he did was, uh, I think it was in the 80s, he went to Harvard University and spoke at Harvard Business School uh, to a whole bunch of guys who were getting their MBAs. And he said, uh, the title of his topic 
of his talk was why Harvard can't teach ethics. And he expected with, a, with something like that and talking about objective truth and all this stuff, he expected all of the students to really push back on him and say, no, that's not true. Of course we can teach ethics, of course, all that sort of stuff. But to his surprise, they just sat there in silence uh, through the whole talk and, and left. And this is what he said about this. He said, I left Harvard worried. What would happen to these students when they became leaders of American business? Now, one of the students who was in the class at the time uh, was a man called Jeffrey Skilling. I don't know if you know of Jeffrey. Yeah, Richard knows, right? Um, you might know of uh, Exxon. Uh, is it Exxon? Enron. Enron Corporation. Um, he was the CEO of Enron for a long time, and uh, it was the biggest bankruptcy in the history of the United States, uh, and he uh, went to prison for maybe got out two years ago. He went for 18 years for um, financial uh, insider trading and cooking the books and everything like that. Um, And this is what uh, Charles Colson goes on to say. Enron's collapse exposes the glaring failure of the academy. Ethics historically rests on absolute truth, which these institutions have systematically assaulted for decades. You see, ethics classically are unchanging standards which derive their authority from a transcendent authority. So we talked about this when we did our Defenders series, and we talked about how God gives us our moral um, duties and values. The problem is if you teach permissive ethics, you'll turn the best and brightest into permissive businessmen who cut corners and think they can get away with it. So that is uh, what happens when you don't have objective truth morality standpoints, and you have this idea that, well, if I can get away with it, it's okay. The more we investigate the claims of Jesus in the Bible, though, the more we find them to be actually verifiably true, not just because they sound nice or because they move my own agenda along or because they um, just seem to feel okay, but because they actually objectively true. And we've got some examples here of some prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus this is just a, a small sampling, right? There's uh, like 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled um, in, uh, in the Old Testament, written hundreds and some of them thousands of years before Jesus arrived. Uh, and so things like his birth, okay, uh, the place that he was born, things that he doesn't have any control over, right? You, you can't control, unless he's God, right? Then he, then he could, okay? But I, I, if I wanted to fulfill these prophecies, I missed my chance, Okay, because I was born in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong way. Um, and as well as these sorts of things, because people go, oh, but you can't trust the Bible. You know, we actually have historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And we talked about that last year when we talked about the resurrection. There's scientific evidence for a creator. There's philosophical evidence for a creator. We've been, as I said, we've been through both of these when we looked at last year. But the more you investigate the more reasons you have, philosophically, scientifically, historically, archaeologically, all of these things that point to the existence of God, the truth of the Gospels, uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we have more and more evidence, like objective evidence, to say that Jesus was who he said he was, which means that we can trust him when he says that he is the life. And we talked about the life last week, because he said last week, I am the resurrection and the life. So we're not going to 
go into a great bunch of detail on this, but just to refresh that Jesus is claiming to be the source of life. He's saying that he has been given the power over death, and he's able to give life, eternal, true, everlasting, fulfilling life, and that he's the only one who can do it. No system, no person, no idea, no philosophy, no way of being can do it apart from him. But also you'll remember he says that it's not just available in the future, but it's available now because of the Holy Spirit as the down payment. And we talked about that last week as well, that we are able to enjoy a foretaste, a promise of the life in the kingdom now. And so as we come to close this morning, I want us to consider, are we following, truly following the way? Are we walking on the path, the way of Jesus? Are people looking at our trajectory in life and seeing that we are going a different way to them? How serious are we about the way? Do we listen to the truth about the world, even though the world itself may be screaming at us that there's something other out there, another way that's true, or maybe that there's no true ways? Do we still believe actually in the objective truth of the person of Jesus? Do we believe that God's truth is incarnate in the person of Jesus, the one who exists outside of space and time, the one from whom all truth gets its value? And do we experience the life? We talked about this last week. Do we know what it's like to live out the kingdom life here and now? These are all important questions for us to reflect on as we uh, come to worship this morning. And so let's pray and respond. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, uh, again, you have caused these things to be written down. We thank you that uh, there is actually objective and weighty evidence for the reliability of these words being recorded thousands of years ago. We thank you that uh, this revelation about who you are changes our lives when you are the way and we can follow you on that way. We can experience a different life. We thank you that you are the truth, and when we listen to you, we know how to live more skillfully in this world. We thank you that you are the life, and when we uh, live and follow the way and listen to the truth, we get to experience that life. We get to not only look forward to that life, but to experience a foretaste of it here and now. And so we just pray that you would uh, really speak to us as we reflect on those statements. Are we following the way? Do we believe the truth? And are we living your life? Lord, we ask that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would comfort us where we need comfort, and that you would uh, speak to our hearts. We pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.